There's some stats that say that every day, 1,500 teens will take a prescription pill that they've gotten from someone's medicine cabinet or someone gave it to them at school to get high, 1,500 a day of our children. So it starts young. When I was at University of Vermont, they gave me my first ever Oxycontin, and it was a, a 40 milligram. We used to call them peaches back in the day, right? Yeah. That was kind of what gave me my first taste of what it was like to not care about anything and to be able to feel a dopamine rush that was so strong that it could overtake any kind of depression or anxiety or traumatic experience. And by the time I graduated high school, I would say a a pretty decent percentage of my graduating class in Milford, Connecticut was addicted to Oxycontin. I found Coke, like, oh, I could do that and drink and, you know, and then all the things that come with that. Then I need the pills to bring me down. And so I went to rehab for the first time when I was 20 and I had dropped out of college at that point. And what followed was really just like eight years of real darkness. I'm Doug Bopes personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobes, and today's episode is not only timely, but truly one of the most impactful and informative conversations you might hear. This conversation is about drug addiction. A report that was recently released stated there were over 93,000 drug overdose deaths in the United States in 2020, which is nearly a 30% increase from the year before. My fear is that these numbers will continue to climb. This episode is going to be a masterclass on drug addiction and recovery. It is going to feature different parts from three previously released conversations surrounding these topics. We will talk statistics, causes, and solutions. You will discover contributing factors and also hear a few transformation stories. The first part will feature renowned interventionist and hostage negotiator, Heather Hayes, as she provides some staggering statistics on what we are facing, what's causing the epidemic, and how to know if someone is having addiction issues. Then you will hear from health and wellness influencer Ariel Laurie and internet personality Mike Malak as they both share their riveting stories of overcoming addiction. The episode will then become more solution-oriented as you will hear from Heather again on practical steps to take if someone is suffering with addiction, as well as advice from Ariel and Mike. My hope is that after listening to this conversation, you will feel educated, hopeful, and inspired to take action or to be prepared to take action if you or a loved one are ever suffering from addiction. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Mike Malak, Ariel Laurie, and Heather Hayes to the Adversity Advantage podcast. In this section of the episode, interventionist and hostage negotiator Heather Hayes provides some insight on the drug epidemic, including some shocking statistics, what's causing it, and how to know if someone you know is suffering with addiction. And I think one of the things that sticks out to me, and I've heard you talk about this several times, is in terrorist attacks and hostage situations, it's the most important person to keep alive is the victim. We don't want any lives lost. And then when it comes to the hostage situation we're facing right now with the addiction crisis, it's like so many lives are being lost every single day. You and I were chatting before, and I think you were saying that overdoses are up now. It's I think 220 something drug overdoses 
Yeah, before the pandemic, we were looking at about 197 overdose deaths a day. And the most recent stats that have come out in the last nine months, it's up to 223 death by overdose a day. So it's tragic. And I think part of what's happened during the pandemic is that availability of Narcan, of services, treatment centers have gone out of business. They, our needle exchange programs haven't been able to get out and help meet people on the street. We haven't been able to really support. It's been more difficult. Therapists are harder to get in touch with. I was reading something yesterday about, I'm doing a talk. I'm flying to Texas today and I'm doing a talk on working with victims of human trafficking. And the average length of time for someone who's in the foster care system or the Medicaid system of being able to get in front of a psychiatrist is seven months. That's outrageous. So there's also a lack of resources available, particularly for those who aren't able to self-pay. Yeah. And unfortunately, because of the pandemic, these are some of the unfortunate long-term negative side effects of the isolation and of shutting down businesses and everything. Again, I'm not saying it was right or wrong. Like I, I don't want to talk about that. I'm just saying it's just a fact of what's going on right now. And people are struggling. Right. Overdoses are up. Uh, yeah. Other addictions are up. Suicide rates are higher. Alcohol sales are through the roof. And people are finding ways to cope with their trauma, cope with the pain, cope with the stress in ways that are available in the here and now, if they're not able to go and see a therapist or a psychiatrist in a week's time or a few weeks time, or even a month. And anxiety's up anxiety because you're also living in a world now where as we learn more, I think about even a year ago, we didn't know if you were going to walk out the door and take a breath and catch this horrible disease. And was it going to kill you right away? And that's a scary way to live. Yeah, it's horrible. And and I want to get into the weeds more on the statistics because I know I've heard you say several times you've rattled off these insane statistics that I didn't even know. So you are on the front lines and you're seeing a lot um, go on. And I'm sure that interventions have gone up during the pandemic versus pre-pandemic just based on uh, the increased mental health issues, the increased amount of overdoses, everything that we were talking about a few minutes ago. What are you seeing now? Is it predominantly still fentanyl? Is it still heroin? Is it Coke? Is it pot? Is it social media? Like now, like what are you seeing now with substance use issues? With substance use, it's everything. What I am seeing that's newer in the last three to four years is really what I'd call poison drugs out there too. I know that In New York City, of the overdoses on cocaine, 40% of those who'd overdosed on cocaine, which means the cocaine had fentanyl in it, 40% would not meet the criteria for substance use disorder. So what that means is that we have individuals out there who were using for the first, second, third time, or they're social users, they're not addicted And they're taking drugs that, again, have poison, fentanyl, and and they're dying from that. So the death rate is high. And there's not a lot of room for experimentation. We've seen teenagers who are using for the second and third time and have taken a fake Xanax or some cocaine and are overdosing and dying from it. So in the early 80s and 90s, when I first started, we would say your loved one has the potential of dying from this disease. And now we're saying, even when they experiment, it's much more serious. And so not to really come in and be an alarmist, but it's alarming. 
I don't want to obviously use scare tactics, but I want people to honestly understand what reality actually is today because it's a problem. And there's a lot of narratives out there. There's a lot of rhetoric. And I think just being able to hear from someone who's on the front lines of actually doing the work in there, who has no agenda other than to help save lives, like what's actually going on so that if it's, there's a parent who's listening or there's somebody that has a loved one or somebody themselves, they can understand like the depths of this issue and then be able to get help or help someone if there's a need. So I want to pivot just before we get into the actual intervention process and helping somebody get from having an issue to getting treatment or getting help. Like how does somebody know if they're struggling with addiction or how can somebody tell if a loved one or one of their kids is having substance use issues? What are some signs and symptoms? Absolutely. One of the things that we talk about is repeated use despite negative consequences. Now, I think where it gets trickier is with adolescent young adult addiction because you don't get as much history and teenagers tend to use more in a single time than adults. So they binge. And that makes it more difficult. But what we do know is with adolescent young adults, the brain's not completely formed. So you're pouring drugs or alcohol on top of the immature, undeveloped brain. So when you start to see things, again, with your, when you're looking at an adolescent young adult, you look for things like change in personality, drop in grades, lack of interest in the things they used to be interested in. Suddenly, again, there's a difference between teens who just don't want to shower and like to sleep where that's a change in, in the personality, or you're finding things, you're finding marijuana, you're finding straws, you're finding drugs, or they begin to get in trouble at school, or they get arrested. It's a big deal, because that's what teens, that's their life. And teenagers are very good at hiding things. So if they're beginning to get caught, usually you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. I can't tell you how many parents have said to me, I only think little Billy has done drugs three times because I found it three times. And I'm saying it's probably you can multiply that by a lot more because yeah, where there's fire. That's right. That's like the tip of the iceberg with adults. You tend to see different differences too. At, at that point in time, you begin to see things like you know, loss of job, legal consequences, relationships. I started my career working at a facility where we treated addicted physicians, pilots, attorneys. And so their careers were great for a lot of them. The places where their lives were in shambles were on the personal front. Their children didn't like being around them. They changed personalities. They lost many marriages from from it. So by the time they did begin to get in trouble at work, we were looking at later stage addiction. So my advice to parents is don't sit back and try and be your own diagnostician. We have professionals out there, addictionologists, substance abuse experts that can come in and help determine whether or not your child is addicted or not. And we're living in a world now where they don't even have to be addicted if they are high risk into high risk behavior where they're going to go and recklessly take a pill they buy off the street or a friend gives them. They're at risk of being handed fentanyl. So there's not a lot of room for mistake in this day and age, unfortunately. Yeah, I think, and I think a lot of parents, unfortunately, they get into denial and they say, it's not true. He couldn't be doing that. We've raised him so well. He went to this school. We make this much money. We have great friends. Like he's too good of a kid. It would never happen. And then it happens. Not my kid. You hear that all the time. So let's walk. 
I do think the opiate epidemic has held up a mirror to the affluent society because now we're seeing deaths in our in Beverly Hills. I'm not intervening in the ghetto. I'm intervening in Buckhead, in Manhattan, in Beverly Hills. I am I'm intervening with families of means. And yeah. so it it does happen. And it's always happened. It's never discriminated. Yeah. I went to private school. I had the best of upbringing. I rode horses as a teen competitively. I my grandfather was a United States senator and I was absolutely as addicted gets. So it's never discriminated. But I think what's changed is that the ability to say it's not here in our schools or in our neighborhoods has been taken away by the unfortunate, tragic, horrific death toll. Yeah, and I think the stigma has been reduced a little bit in the sense of what we think an addict looks like. Because I think in prior, we think it's the homeless person standing on the side of the road, like begging for money, drinking something or whatever it is. But in reality, it's it's everywhere. It's our students. It's our pilots that flew the plane you know, wherever we were headed, it's your grandmother, you're right. And I do yeah. think that stigma gets in the way. I think that stigma is also another hostage taker that keeps us from really moving forward. There's some stats that say that every day, 1,500 teens will take a prescription pill that they've gotten from someone's medicine cabinet or someone gave it to them at school to get high. 1500 a day of our children. So it starts young. And so we've got to, by the time we come in junior high, start doing drug education, it's too late. Yeah. And we have to start early. In this next part, you will hear from internet personality, Mike Malak, as he shares his story of overcoming addiction. Here it is. And I hope you enjoy it. How did you get to that place where you're selling copious amounts of heroin? You're massively addicted to drugs. You're 300 pounds. Your life's a mess. You're completely broken in every single way. I mean, people always people always look at uh, at at people that are in bad places in life like they just ended up there. You right. know what I'm saying? Like, oh my god, like this homeless person, you know, or 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 this person who's addicted to drugs, like they they just you know it's like it, it happened last night. It all is just a, a, a um, avalanche of not avalanche, but it's like a it's like a a rolling snowball of shit, you know? And, yeah. and I started, I started just like a lot of other people smoking weed, you know, when I was 15, 16 years old and, you know, moved into selling weed to support that habit. You know, I mean, I, you, you, you read the book, so you know how kind of I ended up um, moving into narcotics, but, but when I was, when I was 16 years old, I had a really bad uh, injury in Vermont. I broke my femur skiing. And that was the first time I was ever given a Oxycontin. And you said your foot was like next to your head, right? Or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I broke my femur in half. The biggest, the biggest bone in, in, in your body um, broke my, broke my leg in half. My foot was right here. I woke up blood uh, surrounded by blood on, on uh, the icy slopes of Killington mountain for anybody that's from the East coast. Uh, one of the, one of the iciest places on the earth. There's no powder. It's just like skiing on concrete basically. And um, when I was at University of Vermont, they gave me my first ever uh, Oxycontin. And it was a, a 40 milligram. Uh, we used to call them peaches back in the day, right? Yeah. That was kind of what gave me my first taste of what it was like to not care about anything. And to be able to feel a dopamine rush that was so strong that it could overtake any kind of uh, depression or anxiety or traumatic experience that I, that I 
generally had been used to feeling right. And uh, it was a taste. And I was so young that I obviously didn't see them again uh, for quite some time after that. But then when I was 17 years old, this was, by the way, just to give some context in uh, 2000, the early 2000s, so call it 2002, maybe during a time which I would call, you know, the beginning of the epidemic, you know, the, the, the true uh, start of what would be a, uh, one of the worst epidemics in the history of the country that has taken hundreds of thousands of lives um, and has evolved into a, a, a catastrophe, an absolute, an absolute, you know, human rights issue, right? H- human issue. And in, in, in early, in 2002, Oxycontin took over um, a lot of states like mine in Connecticut, like a, like a tidal wave. And by the time I graduated high school, I would say a, a pretty decent percentage of my graduating class in Milford, Connecticut was addicted to, uh, was addicted to Oxycontin. And so that was kind of what got me started on that, on that train. And uh, once that started, it was, there, there was no slowing down. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think you kind of had you had your hand in two different buckets of the the addiction cycle, if you will. Like, there's a lot of people that get prescribed painkillers and they become addicted, and then there's a lot of people like this is for for me where I had so much pain and trauma, insecurities, anxiety, and fear that I just got a taste of a painkiller, and I was like, wow, I don't have to feel these feelings anymore. I don't have to have these fears. I feel this monkey come off my back. I can finally be myself. And I feel like you had you had both. You had the surgery, but I feel like you had some some pain early on. I know you you were trying to fit in. I know your parents got divorced. You changed schools, which was really hard for you. You went to a private school, and then you all of a sudden go, go to this public school. It's a little bit rowdier. There was a lot more trouble there. So talk about about that experience for you, like what you were feeling. What did the divorce kind of? indirectly give you anxiety did you have this this sense of what's wrong with me like why is this happening to me at that time yeah i think a, a mixture of that i think uh in in my situation the divorce, the divorce happened at a time <clears throat> and i'm you know i'm sure a lot of people can relate to this but the divorce happened at a time when i needed uh structure and discipline the most yeah. right and so uh that that time right around a 15 year old boy's life when he really needs his dad to be there and say yo like this is not what you're supposed to be fucking doing. And by the right. way, not even that, not what you're not supposed to be doing. You're not fucking doing this in my right. house. You will not do this in my house. And uh, when my parents split uh, and he, he was, um, he was still in the picture, but he wasn't, he wasn't intimately in the picture. He wasn't there every day and every night. Right. And so I think that that was a, a, a trauma that, you know, the divorce, when I look back at my story, I generally don't even, I don't even mention the divorce because whereas other people would look at the, the their parents splitting as this massive obstacle in their life and something that uh, a trauma that they still have to deal with. For me, I mean, shit, when I lo- look at my list going back, the divorce is, was, uh, you know, at least I had believed it to be for a long time, a cakewalk comparatively to the other things that I've fucking dealt with and seen. Right. I also think that, um, it, it, the 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 link between mental health and uh, mental illness and and substance abuse for for us yeah. you know that have been through it we we know that link very well but it's a, it's still a very heavily discounted scenario that link is just so tight and and, yeah. and also also from a propensity to um to become addicted i i mean i, I think genetic uh, the addi- addiction and how it works genetically is something that people downplay and i do have a history in my family and so I kind of, I kind of got a, a, all of the, 
all of the necessary, you know, buckets filled. And so by the time I um, was reintroduced to Oxycontin recreationally during this absolute uh, tidal wave of, of Purdue Pharma driven Oxycontin, which was one of the most corrupt marketing uh, situations that has ever touched this country, billions of dollars in revenue. Um, it was, it was off to the races for me and there was no way to slow it down. Yeah. I hundred percent agree with you because I do. And I've heard you say this. It's like, you know, I think there is some sense of choice when it comes to addictions in the sense that you have to, sometimes you have to make that choice to stop at some point. Like you're not going to stop using drugs unless you make a choice. But I think there's also the conversation needs to be had that there's a lot of it that's out of the out of our control. Different situations, different traumas, our environment sometimes can contribute to it, and we don't even know it. You know, it's almost happens on a subconscious level. And I think with with Purdue and the oxys, like I'm right there with you. Like I remember when I took my first painkiller. I mean, I knew I wasn't putting spinach in my system, but I had no idea that they were going to be that addictive and not just that addictive, Mike, but that fast. I mean, you know how it is. You start with five milligrams and it's all 10, 20. And then two weeks later, you're doing a couple hundred milligrams a day. I don't think, uh, I don't think any of us were ready for it. I, I, I talk about oxys in, in a weird way. When, when, um, when our parents were coming up, they came up on Quaaludes. They yeah. came up on Vicodin, Percocet, five milligrams here, five milligrams there. And then they, they want to look back and say, how – how the fuck did you end up going from pills to heroin? Right. Yeah. And what, what they don't, what, what they're missing and what people don't understand about Oxycontin is it, the, the one thing more than anything else that it was, was the bridge. Yeah. The bridge from recreational drugs to hardcore addictive uh, substances. Right. And so because of how much power and narcotics you were able to pack into each one of those pills, when we, uh, Oxy-80s were the strongest pills ever besides the 160s, which were on the market for probably a year and everyone died. And then they took them off because originally there was a 160 milligram Oxycontin pill. Yeah. I don't, I don't, re- I don't remember. I, I don't, they were like, uh, something people talked about. Like I never saw them. I'd only heard yeah. of them. Was, right. Yeah. Like you said, back when I was doing it, it was OC 80 was like the Holy grail. There was these red sixties that kind of came out a little bit later. Yeah. And then yeah. there was the orange 40 milligrams. There was the pink twenties and then the white tens. Yep. And then there was like the generic stuff, which we wouldn't want because it was, filled, it. it was filled with filler and you couldn't snort it. Correct. I mean, if you snorted it, you would end up with like with almost like this oozing coming out of your nose from all the acetaminophen or whatever. Yeah. And and I was like you, like I I was so I was almost like a snob when it came to painkillers. That's all I wanted was was eighty milligram oxys, and I would do anything to get them. You know, I would burn people, I would manipulate people, I would lie. I mean, that was like my my full time job, as you know, as we all know, is how I'm on a score. Who am I going to do it with? What do I have to sell to get the money? Where am I going to do it? What am I going to eat afterwards? What songs am I going to play when I'm literally ridiculous? Is it ridiculous that (laughs) people people will never understand how addiction is? It's it's a religion of sorts. Yeah, what I'm saying, like like, dude, can you imagine the idea of being fully invested in just one thing? That is it. There is nothing else on the entire planet that fucking matters besides this one thing. It's mind blowing. And people aren't able to comprehend what that looks like. 
when you try to explain it to people that your entire goal in life is to get high is how am I going to cover myself for tomorrow? When I wake up in the morning, I don't want to be sick tomorrow. What can I do? The only way to explain it to someone would be war. And I hate to, I hate to um, discount the rightful nature of actual conflict and more so the heroic, you know, output and service of the people that go to war for this country or for any country, but it's a battle. It's a fucking battle day in and day out that, that deals with uh, uh, factors that, that are, are incomprehensible and, yeah. and mind blowing. I mean, you're so lucky to be alive um, for sure. I mean, gosh, the amount of times you escape death, is mind blowing in your book. I definitely encourage people to go pick up Mike's book. I mean, he gets into the nitty gritty of a lot of these stories that I think you're going to, you're going to get a lot of questions that you've had answered because I think a lot of people, they wonder, Mike, they're like, how does somebody go from growing up in like a decent family? They go to school. Um, then they, you know, they're just starting to smoke weed. How do they end up doing heroin? Like what happens in between? And I think most people that are dealing with opiate addiction now, they're not the people that are just experimenting with painkillers and then stop. You're hearing about people now that are just hooked on heroin. They're hooked on fentanyl. They're doing whatever they they can to get that into their into their system. So, like, what what caused you? I know what caused it, but if you could give the listeners just a summary of what what was it that caused you to make that switch from painkillers to to heroin? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobst. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobst. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. In... I think it was like 2004 or five Purdue pharma realized we are fucked. We are in deep, deep, deep. Tr- they knew before that they right. knew before that they, you, I mean, for, for people who are knowledgeable about the Purdue situation, once again, uh, the Sackler family, one of the most uh, corrupt cover-ups and disgusting marketing and business operations that have ever existed in this country. Billions and billions and billions of dollars off of, off of the pain of people who were promised a way out of pain and were introduced a pain that they never could have fucking understood or saw coming. In the early 2000s, Purdue realized we're in a lot of trouble here. We have created a actual opiate epidemic in this country. It is, it is happening in real time and there is nothing we can do to stop it out of control. They, they were already federally in trouble. And one of the things one of the first things they did was started to remove Oxycontin from the markets. 
and, and from the shelves of pharmacies. And so you saw this mass pullback on supply of Oxycontin to the country. And at a time, at a time when, at that time, we were used to getting Ziploc bags. I mean, I would go to a pharmacy in Bridgeport, Connecticut and get Ziploc bags of Oxy 80s. We would get them a thousand at a time and we would owe $30,000 to the whatever, right? We would make 60,000, but the profit, you know where it went, right? When they pulled back on the Oxys, then they tried to come out with a crush proof Oxy, which that wouldn't work, right? The, the, the supply of everything was dwindling. And one day I, I called my friend um, and I said to him, hey man, uh, I can't find anything. The town's dry. I'm sick. The girlfriend's sick. My customers are all sick. We're, this is bad. So Very you mean bad. sick going through withdrawal, right? Withdrawal. Yeah. Sweating, shitting, vomiting, shaking, throwing up on themselves. Sick, oh yeah. Right? You know the story. Yeah. And uh, he said, yeah, man, I know. Um, but uh, I just got a little bit of D, uh, of D from Bridgeport. And I was like, what is he talking about right now? Like, what are you talking about? He's like, I got D, dude, from Bridgeport. And I was like, dude, what are you talking about? What does that even mean? Is that like a, a new pill or something? He was like, no, like dope, dude, like heroin. And like, it was like, a, it was like I remember the phone call very well. It was, it was a, very, um, a very memorable moment in my journey. Um, because I, I said to him, to myself, just mentally, I said, did he just say heroin? Is that what just ha- Is that where we've gone? Slowly but surely after that point, it, it, it became a mainstay and it became a part of our lives. And, and um, I speak about it in the book a little bit too. The drug, the, the life of an addict is a life of desperation. Yeah. It's, not a, it's not a life of, of decision-making. It's not a life of saying, oh, this is a journey or a place I don't want to go. It's a life of how do I make the pain stop? If you have a way to make this pain stop, I will take it and I don't care what it is. Right. And so there was a little bit of um, hesitation, but slowly but surely pretty much everyone eventually ended up doing heroin. Yeah. And that's generally the story, right? Where people, they can't either afford the street value of pills because I think it's supply and demand. So if the supply is low, then the demand's high, the price goes up. At first, when you start using drugs, you're doing it to get high and to have fun. And then eventually the pendulum swings and you're doing it to numb pain, numb the shame of where your life is as a result of, of the drugs. Yeah. You're just trying to get by. Yeah. Get by. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, you, you talked about the, the time release uh, and, and honestly, like one of the, historical and infamous tales of ox of the oxy days um the time re- the removal of the time release was a was a the greatest moment of your life you know it was the greatest moment of your life you know and at, at the time and uh when we started uh it was extremely ceremonial you know and we would all get together and we would take the time releases off and we would sit there and we chop an 80 up four ways and you know and 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 and, and at first it started and it was a weekend thing we would do it at parties. Like, yo, you want to try an oxy? Like, you want to do an oxy this weekend at a party? And in the end, you know, you, you, you found yourself removing, you know, the time seal and, and, and wiping it on your shirt. Instead of being in, in you know, a, a living room surrounded by your friends, you'd be in a, in a dirty bathroom, you know, crushing an oxy up on the back of a toilet, uh, mm-hmm. using, a, using a, a rolled up 
business card to sniff it because you had no dollars left. You didn't even have any money to sniff it with, you know? And so I think the, the story of an addict or the story of someone who uses drugs, um, generally follows that trajectory. It starts in this very luxurious format or ceremonial format. And then over the course of time devolves into, um, desperation and into, um, a, a, a filthy, disgusting, ravaging disaster that is all encompassing and, and destroying. Yeah. And I think it's important for people because I have a lot of parents that listen to this too, to, to hear this. And this is why I wanted you to tell your story like this is like, this is how it starts. It doesn't just start with someone just going out and, and putting a needle in their arm or someone just doing heroin or even oxys. There's something that transpires before that. And there's these dominoes that just start to fall into place one by one, one domino, the next domino and so on and so forth. And, and I know for you, like, I think the fire like was lit a little bit when you started smoking and dealing pot, then it lit a little bit more when you were doing oxy. Then when you started doing heroin, I feel like you just took gasoline and just dumped it on the fire. And it just like, Whoa, I think just oxy, like uh, oxygen and heroin, they could all be combined. Yeah. To be I mean, just the, just opiates in general were, were my thing. And I mean, it was, I, I also was on methadone for six years. That was just another layer of, of, of opiate addiction. It's just hard to put into words how, how tight those handcuffs are and how, how it's able to just destroy the lives of such good people. I used to look at these people who had a new Camry and uh, a, a, a little dog in their yard at a $150,000 house in Connecticut. And I said, if I ever get that back, I will be the most blessed person on this fucking planet, dude. You know, after heroin, it seems like, you know, life really started to fall apart fast for you. You went and, li- and lived with a, with a dealer out where you in New Haven or Bridgeport? Bridgeport at the time. Bridgeport first. Yeah. Then- Brid- yeah. And then you end up selling for him. He gets into some trouble with his connection, owes him a bunch of money. The guy comes in, pistol whips him, blood all over the floor. You pretty much have to stop this person from killing this guy. Meanwhile, after this, you would think that would stop things. You end up getting arrested multiple times. You should have gone to jail, really, because you were busted with uh, heroin once, right? And uh, uh, Twice. Yeah. And then you're on, you're backing up five years and then you got pulled over again and then they searched you and somehow didn't find. That was the scariest moment. And, and I, I, like you said, there's a lot of rock bottoms. Yeah. There was a lot of like, oh shit moments. Yeah. And, and obviously, right. And I, and I mean, even greater than that monumental, oh shit moments. And from driving cars off cliffs, like you said, and into riverbeds and waking up to, you know, broken femurs, fractured, uh, fractured skulls. Um, knives, guns, uh, shootings, anything you could imagine. Like all that stuff was, oh shit, but nothing. I don't, I don't, I just don't think there was anything as scary as that moment. I could still feel that fear. And I, 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 so just give some context at the time I I probably had reached just about the height of my heroin uh, dealing days. Um, I was, I was picking up uh, rock heroin, they, they call it, they call them fingers. And so it's, a, it's, uh, 10, it's about 10 grams of rock heroin. And so basically you're picking up enough weight in heroin that it's not even powder form yet. It's coming from God knows the cartels, whatever it, you've reached it at pretty much the distribution standpoint from a distribution point, And you're buying it in, in pretty heavy weights. Right. And 
So I would go to New Haven. This was after Bridgeport toppled. The DEA completely shut down that, that operation. Uh, my, my connected nine years uh, as a result of that DEA raid. It was a simultaneous raid with DEA, ATF. There was guns involved. It was a disaster. I was picking up in New Haven uh, and I, was, I would take it back. And, you know, I, I had, it, I was at a point where I had like write-off, like not write-offs, but I had business expenses. I knew there was a hotel room that needed to be purchased just to break this shit down. So one day I was, I, I had just finished up at the hotel and I was on, uh, at the time I was already a, a um, convicted felon. I had a five year suspended sentence uh, that I that was, maybe I was down to like four years at that. Well, I, I guess it hangs over. So I had a five year suspended sentence. I had maybe four years left of probation. And um, I was, I had gotten into my car. I, I had a Jeep at the time and I was driving the product from New Haven to Milford Bridgeport where I was going to start unloading it. Right. And I had dozens of people waiting for it. Um, and I had about 300, I would say about 360 bags of heroin on me. So about 36 bundles completely wrapped up, stamped everything. Right. And I was driving, uh, through East Haven suspended license, the whole nine, you know, completely dirty. And I get pulled over by the cops and they come up to the window and they go, uh, Mike, what's going on? It, and that's how it was in a lot of cities. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, like license and registration it was, Hey Mike, what's, what are you, what are you up to today? You know? And I was like, Oh, I just left my, uh, my, my girlfriend's house. You know, I'm just driving back to my, to my grandma's cause I was living with my girl, like staying or seeing my grandma a lot, staying with my grandma at the time. Uh, and they were like, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, why don't you give us a license registration? We'll just check everything out. You know? All right, sure. Here you go. Here's license registration. I, at that point, I'm like, dude, it's over. It's over. It's been a fantastic run. It's been a ton of fun. No, it hasn't, but it's over, right? Um, they go back to the car. They come back and they go, you know, your license is suspended, right? And I was like, oh, man, I, I didn't know that. I must have missed the letter from the courts, right? So they go, all right, step out of the car and uh, put your hands against the car. Just put my hands against the car. And he starts doing a cl the classic pat down started high shoulders, blah, blah, down the shirt. Yeah. You got any weapons or anything sharp that's going to poke me on you? No officer. I don't. In my mind, I knew I had 36 bundles of heroin in my, in my cargo pocket because cargo shorts were still a thing because I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> you know, it was the early two thousands or mid mid two thousands. And he's patting down, patting down, patting down, patting down. And my knees are shit. I'm shaking, <laughs> actually shaking waiting for the second where his hand finally gets to the cargo pocket because my life is over. And I know that I've already mentally started to accept the fact that I am going to jail for at least 20 years. I've already started to fucking accept that. Okay. And he's patting down, patting down, patting down and gets to the cargo pocket. And I, Cargo pockets always had this weird thing where it, you couldn't really tell if there was something in it or if it was just the cargo pocket. Cause right, it, right. And, and it was those kind of shorts. It wasn't a tight cargo pocket. It had a little bit of bulk there. And for whatever reason, he gets to the fabric and keeps going down my leg. You can go sit on the curb. We're going to search the car. I, no, I didn't have anything in the car. Cash, cash. I had cash in the car. I go sit on the curb. I'm literally shaking like... I, like, did that really just happen? You're like, is this a prank? <laughs> yeah, this is a prank. And I'm, not, and I'm not out of the situation yet, obviously. Right, 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 right. The cops, there's two of them. And they find, like, I don't know, maybe, like, five Gs, five or six Gs in the... Um, five grand? Yeah, 
right in the in the middle compartment and they come up to me and they go what what is this why do you have so much cash on you i'm like uh i think my, my answer was awful i think i said i do odd jobs for my grandmother around the house the fuck are you talking about no <laughs> no drugs though just the cash so i was right. and honestly at that point like if they if it was a shakedown and they were gonna take the cash i would been like take the fucking cash right 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 cop comes back up to me goes nothing in the car um but you can't drive the car, man. You got to You got to call somebody to come pick you up. And I was like, Oh, cause the registration was suspended, right? Like my license. Oh, your license suspended. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, we're giving you a ticket, a summons. Right. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, Nope, no problem. You right, know what I'm right. like, Whatever you want. Called my dad. Like this was a situation where you call your dad, like, cause you need whoever, like my dad was that one person I could always call dad, I need you to get to this parking lot in East Haven, Connecticut. And he lived in Brantford, which was right next door. In as fat, I don't care if you have to take a spaceship here, dude. I need you here as fast as humanly <laughs> possible, right? He was there in like, he was there in like five minutes. I got in his car and left. I don't know if I ever recovered from that fear to this right. day, like still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, the scariest moment of my entire life. And so you don't stop there. You would think that, you know, you would say, okay, like, gosh, that was a sign from God, the universe, whatever, that maybe, maybe he's like, dude, just stop. I have bigger plans for you. Just change your life now. Go to rehab, go to treatment, whatever it was. But you kept going. You end up, you know, developing a, an addiction to crack. You end up, your, your grandfather, who is a, very important to you in your life and was important in your mom's life, becomes very sick. And there was a moment where you're over, um, you know, his house, I think, taking care of him or your mom's house, taking care of your grandpa. And he was like screaming for help. And you're like getting high upstairs. Right. And just that was like a pivotal. I think one of the breaking one of the last breaking points, I think, for you, where I think you would just realize that your life was in such shambles that I think you were just paralyzed by fear. You didn't know what to do. You wanted, I think, to change, but you just couldn't figure out a way how or you or the pain hadn't become great enough i think in those moments where you were forced to make a decision to improve yourself until somebody made that decision for you and i remember that you end up violating your pro almost violating your probation i guess technically you did but i guess un un technically you didn't because you had this person that gave you this miraculous second chance so talk about that moment it was june 18th 2010 and it was something that completely changed your life well, it was actually, I think it was the one person that stopped giving me second chances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, she <laughs> gave you a second chance in the sense that she could have easily violated you and just sent Correct. you to. So, so what happened with the probation officer was this. I had been through a slew of probation officers and I was on the methadone clinic. And so they, they technically look at the methadone clinic as a medical setting. You're, you're working on yourself. You're doing the best you can. So even if I was popping dirty on urines, they knew that I was under state, or at least they thought that I was under some level of medical care. So they're like, okay, he's already working with doctors. He's already working on this. So even though I gave, I mean, I would say dozens of dirty urines to the probation office, in their eyes, I was satisfying the requirements of the court, which was to work on getting better and to, to solving the problem. So I had all these different probation officers. And one day my probation officer was, was leaving. He was getting reassigned to a different office. And so they said, um, you're going to have a new probation officer. Her name's Ellen Ferrari, uh, Milford probation. Shout out Milford, Connecticut. Uh, and she's going to be your new probation officer. And I was like, a chick 
this is great. Like, this is, I mean, she's probably gonna be so nice. She's gonna be like a, you know, like a friend to me. She'll probably get, let me off even easier. How can I manipulate this woman now? Cause that's what we do, right? As addicts, we're better than anybody. Right, 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 right. And so I go in there, Ellen, good to meet you. Uh, really happy that you can join me on this leg of my journey. And, you know, as I continue to work to get better, you know, we're like politicians. Meanwhile, I was just waiting to get out of that office so I can go sniff fucking Xanax and, and <laughs> crap. You know what I'm saying? She goes, you know, I mean, she, I think she saw it through it immediately, but she said, uh, good to meet you. Um, you know, hope, hopefully um, we can, we can get you back to a good place. And you're like, before we go too far though, can you just take this cup and just go into the, into the bathroom, and just pee in it for me? Absolutely, Alan, no problem. And I went into the bathroom and I peed in the cup and put it into the little thing in the wall and the guy came and got it, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I went back in the office and I was like, oh, all right. You know, I would treat them like my therapist, like, oh, this week, you know, this happened. And she was like, hey, uh, actually, um, I have another client coming in. So you're going to, you'll have to leave, but I'll give you a call tomorrow and let you know, you know, what the next steps are. <laughs> and so uh, she called me back the next day and she said, hey, Mike, um, you know, how are you? I, I'm just calling to check in and let you know that your urine came back. Uh, positive for opiates, benzodiazepines, cocaine. And, and I said, I, that's not possible. I, I haven't used it in uh, 10 days. There's no way those were in my system. I, I'll come back. I'll pee again. Mike, like, stop. No, you're not going to tell me that I had drunk. Mike, here's how this is going to work. Tomorrow morning, you're either going to go into a detox followed by a intensive re inpatient rehab facility, or you're going to do your five-year suspended sentence in jail. Now, this is ridiculous. You're not going to tell me I have to make a fucking choice right now. 10.30 a.m. tomorrow, I need to know what you want to do. It hangs up the phone. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? What just happened? Like, is she serious right now? She was dead serious. So the next day I checked into detox june 23rd june 22nd or june 23rd 2010 and then never use drugs ever wow yeah and so you are a miracle and you're one of the the few i think where you go into treatment you go into a detox for a few days and then you don't touch it again because that was your first time you had really been stopped completely yeah. So what do, what do you think it was like during the early stages that like, what kept you in recovery? What kept you clean? Cause I think that's like the hardest thing is like people are now having to learn to cope with stress, cope with anxiety, reattach behavior to emotions or learning how to deal with their demons. Like, how did you get through that? I wanted more for myself. Mm. I really did. And, and, and I knew, uh, I knew I, I, I had something. Right. I knew I had something to offer and we all have something to offer. And, and, and one of the biggest challenges is finding out what that is. Right. But I found a, I, I, right, right, right off the bat when I got out of rehab. So I was in, so I was in detox for five days. I then went to rehab for another 35. I got kicked out of rehab for fighting, but I technically had uh, successfully completed the time there. So they gave me a successful completion, which was good for probation and whatever. In rehab, I had a lot of time to reflect. And I spent a lot of time by myself in this, in this uh, they call it the meditation room, but I would listen to music. 
I'd listen to Zeppelin. I would listen to Pink Floyd and a lot of stuff that I like to listen to at the time. And I journal and I set up a bucket list for myself, you know, ski Jackson hole, visit California, like think things like that, you know, that, that I thought would never happen. Right. And so, so I spent a lot of time reflecting. I set up this bucket list for myself that, that had all these at the time seemingly impossible tasks on it. And I, I, I like found a lot of like, I found a lot of like serenity and, and, and peace in finally being out of that life. You know what I'm saying? And after, after like the torture and the, and the battle and the war that that was for so long, there was just something just so peaceful about rejoining life at that level. I, I, I don't know. It was, it was a calm that I hadn't felt in so long. I very quickly, and, and this is, you know, I, I'm a big, I'm a big guy on um, tactics as opposed to just, you know, open conversation about stuff. I, I don't consider myself in any way, shape or form whatsoever to be a role model. All I, all I like to do, and cause I have a ton of faults still and do a lot of things that I highly uh, do not recommend the <laughs> addict or, or, you know, person in recovery to do. All I can do is, is talk about and offer the things that helped me. In a, right. in, a, in a meaningful way. Other than that, like, please do not look at me as some sort of poster child or, or even remotely close of, of successful recovery because I haven't completed any of the fucking steps. Well, maybe a couple of them, but, like, <laughs> you know, I still have multiple addictions to things that are not good and, you know, whatever, right? But the things that worked for me are applicable and will work for other people who have a burning desire to be the fully and complete recovered person, Right. One of the first things I fell in love with when I got out of rehab was cycling. And so currently, and, and I have been working on a, a, a foundation called Mike's Bikes. And, and I'm working with a, um, with a, with a foundation that, that helps people create nonprofits called uh, Think Kindness, I believe. Now, now I can't even freaking remember the name. Uh, but but I'd like to start giving bikes to people that are fresh in recovery. And I'll tell mm. you why. So when I first got clean and first got out of rehab, uh, I got this hand-me-down bike. Now, one of, the, one of the other parts of the story that gets overlooked because of all the other stuff is that when I got out of rehab, I was close to 300 pounds, about 100 pounds of pure fat. I mean, wow. I was eating so much fast food, doing so much Xanax. Even though I was smoking crack, it wasn't even hitting. It was nothing. It wasn't doing anything. Like I was eating four meals a day of just straight shit. So when I got a rehab, I think I was like 290 and battered. I mean, teeth, almost all my teeth got like in the back of my mouth gone. Uh, just absolutely fucking fried, right? And I needed to get around. I needed to get to meetings because I wanted to do my 90 and 90, which I did. And my mom gave me this hand-me-down giant bicycle that was the brand it was a red giant bicycle and i would ride this thing and i would ride to meetings and i would ride around and and as i was as i was doing tasks on it i quickly realized wow i really like riding this bike i would put i would listen to mac miller which which you know his death as you read in the book for me was horrible and and yeah. and, and it was tragically hard for me to to see him perish from the things that he helped save me from um, and, and I would ride around, I would listen to Mac Miller on the bike and I would, and I would just ride around and it was incredibly freeing and being in motion again, moving my legs, getting in shape, 
Because you were an athlete as a kid. Correct. And so one of the first things that I found in my early recovery was, okay, there's going to be things like this that make you want to stay clean. They make, they, they, and, and by the way, like not to mention the natural dopamine and, and or serotonin dump that exercise gives you. It's, it's a, it's a feel good activity as much as drugs are. And so, and so I started to identify these positive pursuits very early in my recovery. And I, I attribute them to not only keeping me off drugs post uh, getting clean, but not killing myself, to yeah. be honest with you. I mean, I mean, I could not even begin to make people understand the importance of positive coping tactics. Mm-hmm. It's everything. It's everything. That's Mike Malak. And if you enjoyed that, you will certainly appreciate the journey of health and wellness influencer, Ariel Laurie. Here's her story. But with all that said, you know, today, you know, Ariel, you host an amazing podcast called The Blonde Files. It's highly popular. Like I said a minute ago, you're like a role model for all things health and wellness. But it wasn't long ago that you almost died from, from the depths of addiction. You had a grandma seizure when your parents showed up, went to the hospital. You blacked out for a few months prior to that and nearly lost your life. And before we talk about how you went from there to where you are now, I want to kind of go back a little bit because it's interesting when you think about how an addict grows up, a lot of times you'll hear, well, there was an alcoholic in the family or somebody was abusive or parents got divorced or just something happened that triggered the downfall. And for you, I know your dad was a doctor. Your mom was a stay-at-home mom. You had the family unit there. They were very loving parents. You went to a private school. There was no history of addiction. So what do you think it was, like looking back now, that got the ball rolling for you down that path? Well, thank you for getting my story in like that so concisely, first of all. (laughs) I feel like you just did what takes me like 20 minutes in other interviews. So appreciate that. But, you know, when I do look back on my life, and I have said this in other interviews, I can recognize from a young age that I was looking for something outside of myself to make me feel better inside. And that was like a pattern that continued through my life. I can still get caught up in it so easily, you know, whether it's food or shopping or whatever it is. Um, But I was really looking for something external to make me feel okay inside. So when I was really young, I can remember getting in like, knockdown drag out fights with my with my parents about getting like the latest bell bottoms at limited to you know when I was in like fourth grade things that are so inconsequential but that I needed at like such a primal level and I didn't know at the time that I didn't feel okay um, and that I was looking for something to kind of self-medicate with but it was a pattern and then when I got older it was like I needed this car and I needed whatever it was outside thing and And it wasn't just like a want. I mean, it was, I'm talking like a primal level. And then that turned into like relationship stuff. When I was in high school, you know, I got into a relationship with a guy and it was very toxic and he kind of filled that void for me. And then when things got bad with him, that's when I found drugs and alcohol. And so, you know, I, I feel like I had just kind of this this emptiness inside me, if that makes sense, from a really young age. And I didn't know how to feel okay without something outside of myself. And, you know, as a result of that too, on the side, like I just felt very uncomfortable my whole life. 
until I found drugs and alcohol. And it was like in an instant, I felt comfortable. Yeah. I've heard you say once you took that first sip, once you took that first line, you felt this, this monkey come off your back that you could be at peace with who you are, that you could finally be Ariel. The discomfort was gone. Maybe some anxieties and fears were gone. Uh, but I'm almost wondering, like just l- listening to you tell your story and in various podcasts and even right now, like, do you think you just had it so good growing up that you, you wanted it to be better because you wanted more and more. And when you couldn't really have that more, you just turned to things that were external to kind of fill that. It's interesting. I've never heard it put that way, but we were talking before we started recording about the molecule of more and, and about dopamine. And as soon as you brought that up, I was like, oh, I can relate to that because I have always, you know, I've, I've been chasing like feeling my absolute best. So, you know, I'm not sure if that was the case for me when I was younger. I think that I just, I think it was just kind of the perfect storm. You know, I am also a very anxious person yeah. and I'm very sensitive and, and that runs in my family. You know, my mom is anxious. My, they all deal with their own stuff. Nobody else has dealt with addiction, but they, they have dealt with that stuff. And I think some of that is passed down. And so I think I, it was just, I was just ripe, you know, I just, it was like the right combination of things for, for me. So that when I did find alcohol and drugs, it was like, I could just breathe for the first time. So you have your first drink of alcohol. I think you said you were like what, 16, 17 years old. Somewhere around there. Yeah. And then where does the alcohol take you? The alcohol took me to, well, where you said, you know, having a grand mal seizure, having many grand mal seizures, but you know, it started out socially, like it did with a lot of people in high school and around that age, but I did have consequences from the beginning. So you hear people talk about like, it was fun and then it was fun with problems. And then it was just problems for me. It was like fun with problems from the beginning. And I did end up getting a DUI for the first time when I was about 20. At that point I had been also heavily into cocaine. And, you know, I just found that like the alcohol brought me down, but then I was, I would black out. I was a blackout drinker and I didn't want to blackout. So then I found Coke, like, oh, I could do that and drink and, you know, and then all the things that come with that, then I need the pills to bring me down. And so it was a pretty, I was on a pretty fast trajectory, you know, into like the harder stuff. And so I went to rehab for the first time when I was 20 and I had dropped out of college at that point. And what followed was really just like eight years of real darkness. I just, you know, people from the outside would look at it probably as like a failure to launch. You know, I just couldn't seem to like live up to my potential. And I knew that inside. And so I felt so much shame. And I saw my peers going on to, you know, graduate college and go to grad school and get jobs and all of that. And so instead of admitting that I had a problem, I chose defiance, right? So I was choosing this life. I was choosing to to take the, you know, the road less traveled and kind of choose my own path. And so I would get jobs and then I couldn't hold a job and I would take some classes and try to get back into school and I couldn't stay in school because the the real priority in my life was that feeling like you talked about before. Once I found alcohol and found that feeling and the voice in my head quieted and I felt comfortable, um, I really needed that. And I had no coping skills to deal with the shame that I had been feeling about you know, my peers passing me by and the shame with the little micro traumas that we acquire along the way throughout our addiction. And so I just really was numbing out and I would go to treatment every couple of years. 
always say like I'm a rock bottom person and especially with drugs and alcohol. I mean, that was my medicine. It was my coping skill. I didn't know how to deal with life without it. So it really had to bring me to my knees before I was willing to accept help. So I know it, it started with you drinking socially. You get a DUI at age 20, you go down to Florida, you go to rehab and you just, you end up getting out, carrying on with more self-destructive behavior. And then where does that take you? I know you got to a point where literally you, you couldn't like get up, I think, without drinking or doing drugs. It wasn't like you were just a social drinker who uh, got yourself into trouble. You were now like a full-blown alcoholic slash addict whose life was spinning out of control. Yeah, I got to that point pretty quickly. So when I went to my first rehab at 20, I really felt like I was just doing what my friends were doing and I just happened to get caught. Um, and I was in treatment with people who were like full-blown addicts and alcoholics and I, it was easy to separate myself from them. You know, on the one hand, I did feel, I kind of felt like I, I'd come home. I was around people where I could be my authentic self and not have shame. And I could talk about these things that I was experiencing without shame. And so I got a little taste of that, but I was just like, so I had only been drinking and using for a couple of years. So I was just not ready to stop. And, you know, I believe that alcoholism addiction is a progressive terminal disease in most cases. Um, and my disease really did progress. So every time I would try to get sober, um, I would pick up right where I left off when I started again. So after that first rehab, at that point, I was kind of more binge drinking, binge partying. Then I became like a daily drinker. And then I went to rehab again. And that time I blamed love addiction. And I was like, no, the boyfriend is the <laughs> problem. And everyone was like, you know what? Yeah, I think you're right. Cause we're so manipulative. Right. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, I, I kind of upped the ante when I got out of there. And so by my mid-20s, yeah, I was a daily drinker. I would drink in the morning because um, I would get the shakes. I would drink throughout the day. And I was kind of playing chemist where at that point I was like, okay, I'm going to wake up and I know I'm going to get the shakes and I don't want to go into withdrawal. So I'm going to have like a glass of wine or like a swig of wine from the bottle. Let's be real. And then I'm going to take an Adderall. And then once the Adderall kicks in, then I'll take a little piece of a Xanax to bring me down a little bit so that I'm not too speedy. And then I'm going to drink some more. And then at night I'm going to get some blow. I mean, it was just like insanity, as you know. And my whole life was dictated by when I was going to get to drink next, when I was going to take, you know, whatever, um, just a complete prisoner of drugs and alcohol. And having gone to rehabs and detoxes enough, I knew that I, that physically I was in danger because I knew what happens when you're on benzos and you're on alcohol. You know, those are the most dangerous withdrawals, not necessarily the most uncomfortable, although it's pr pretty effing terrible you know, especially for somebody with anxiety, like I can still feel it talking about it. I'm like, ugh, like it's, you know, just that crawling out of your skin feeling the worst, the worst it's, it was brutal. Um, and I knew, I knew that I was pretty screwed. You know, I was like, I know that I can't quit this myself. And, and I wanted to, you know, and that was another thing that really fed the shame is like waking up and being like, okay, I'm not going to drink today. Maybe I would still take a Xanax because I knew I, I would withdraw a little bit. Right, right, right. But um, you know, I'm not going to drink today, and I'm going to taper off the Xanax, and I'm going to do it. And like, and I meant it. You know, I was, and I really, for whatever reason, by three o'clock in the afternoon, I'm pulling into the liquor store and buying, you know, wine or vodka or whatever it was. I didn't really care. Um, and and so that was like really baffling and really shameful to me as well. 
because I was in this situation where I, I knew I had to stop. I wanted to stop, but I also knew that I couldn't really stop and I didn't want to ask for help. And so that's when my life really took a turn and I just kind of gave up and my boyfriend moved out and you kind of referenced this. I was kind of blacked out for a few months. I had a neighbor who was a drug dealer who was uh, feeding me God knows what. You know, I, I can't, it's hard to speak for myself at the time because I really don't remember, but I don't, I don't remember at any point really wanting to die. I just didn't know what to do. And I just kind of gave up. And so, you know, at that point I was like having seizures and just drinking until I passed out and coming to, and then drinking some more, taking something and passing out and coming to. And that's what I did for a few months until my family finally intervened. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And it's amazing that you're still alive after just listening to all what you were putting in your system. Like, that's what I love. That's what, why I like sharing stories like this is because they, somebody sees your Instagram profile and they see some photos of you or they listen to your podcast and like, there's no way. I couldn't go to, I lived like a few blocks away from a Whole Foods in West Hollywood before I got sober. I didn't even have to drive there. I could walk there and I would have to do so much to get myself to that baseline, to be in a place where I felt like I could be in public and not be like the shaking weirdo. (laughs) Um, And like, you know, I can laugh about it now, but at the time I did not want to be doing that. And I try to emphasize that whenever I talk about this, because I think there is still kind of this, I mean, I I don't think I know that addiction is still like very stigmatized. And a lot of people think that it's, you know, a moral choice. Unfortunately, Um, I did not want to be doing that. And like I said, I would wake up in the morning and be like, today is the day, you know, like I knew that it was bad. Um, and I really wanted to stop and I really wanted to have a life and I just couldn't do it. Right. So like looking back, I mean, obviously it seems like you're the type of person that appreciates everything that's happened in your past. Cause it's made you who you are today. And you have mm-hmm. this mentality that things happen for you, but like looking back, if like, say like, if you had, was there certain things that if you could have had them at some point in your addiction, you think you may have gotten into recovery sooner? Like maybe if, you had some sense of inter- like an intervention with a therapist you really trusted, you were in a healthy relationship, like something like that? I mean, I always hoped along the way, I felt like if I got the right relationship, if I got a stable job that I loved, if I went back to school, if, 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 mm. then I wouldn't be an alcoholic or an, or an addict. Um, and as we know, like that usually doesn't fix it. For some people it does, right? But um, or, or it galvanizes them to go seek treatment finally. Yeah. Um, so that's not unusual, but for me, I really had to be kind of beaten into submission. You know, I, along the way, like I went to really good rehabs, my parents, like God love them. They were, they just wanted to believe the best. So every time they were like, this is going to be it. And I would go into it saying, okay, this is going to be it, you know? And so they would send me to these places. And this whole time I was in therapy and I did have a therapist in Florida who was amazing. And now we're like Facebook friends and he's always like so happy for me. And he actually went above and beyond. Like I was in an abusive relationship at that time and I didn't show up for my session. And he knew that like things were not good. Um, and he was sober himself and he like broke ethical codes and came over to my house because he knew that something was wrong. And he actually got me into the hospital after I'd been like beaten up. And, um, wow. and after that, I got sent to another rehab based on his suggestion. And, you know, so I had really good people who were really working on my behalf and people that I trusted, but I just wasn't ready till I was ready. Like, you know, back to me being a rock bottom person, like I'm so stubborn that I need to be 
totally out of options before I'm willing to make any kind of changes um, or do things that benefit me. I'm still like that even now with seven years sober. You know, I know the things that are really good for me, but sometimes I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like, I know it's right. going to make me feel better, but I don't want to. I have to wait till I'm in enough pain. And, you know, so I am really grateful for it because being at that low of, of a rock bottom, it made me willing to kind of go to any lengths to pursue sobriety and figure out what was at the root cause of my issues. And then like now obviously pursue wellness and just like the absolute best life that I can. So you end up going to Cedar sinai after you have this grandma seizure um, when your parents show up and then you end up going to treatment out in what Utah, right? Utah. Mm-hmm. What was the inspiration behind that? There was something funny, right? <laughs> yeah. The inspiration was Lindsay Lohan, which, <laughs> you know, I can't help but laugh now because yeah, you know, I was, I had been in Cedars for like three or four days. They were trying to stabilize me because I was having seizures and I was in like massive withdrawal. Mm. Um, and I really don't remember the first 30 days of my sobriety very much, but I do remember this moment where my family came in and they were like, you need to go to treatment. And I remember being like, yeah, I do like, that's correct. And they said, you can go to Malibu or you can go to promises, which was in Malibu. And I knew that I didn't want to be in LA. And they said, or you could go to, um, the meadows had already been there (laughs) and they were like, or you can go to Cirque. And I remember like at that time, you know, the tabloids and Perez Hilton and those, that was really big. And Lindsay Lohan had been in, in and out of rehab. And I knew for some reason that she went there and I was like, yes, that's where I'm going to go. <laughs> yeah. And now I look back and I'm like, wow, when that's your, your guiding light, you know, then there's a problem. <laughs> no, yeah, offense but I, no, yeah, I know. But I think <laughs> at least in that moment, it gave you what you needed to get there and, and it happened for the right reasons. And you get out and then it, it finally gave you a chance to, to stay in recovery for the first time in your life and ultimately saved, saved you. It ultimately I'm sure saved your, your parents even more grief that they would have experienced had something more drastic happened to you. Mm-hmm. And it gave you a chance now to help other people. So what I want to dive into is I know support groups and treatment played a massive role in your recovery and getting from where you were then to where you are now. But what are a few other things that if you look back, you're like, man, those two things or two, two or three things were pivotal in helping me get through the, the, the raw emotions of recovery, facing my demons, facing the fears, facing all the anxieties that came along with that. Well, yeah, support groups and, and therapy, those are huge, but I, so this is kind of an extension to that, but community, you know, finding community, whether it's in a support group or just finding people who have been through the same thing, like-minded people, there's so much magic in being able to talk to another person who's been through the same thing. Um, I think anybody who's struggled with addiction to anything, you know, we kind of speak the same language. Mm -hmm. our experiences are completely different. I can sit down with another person who's been through it and feel like we've known each other forever. Um, And, you know, because shame was such a driving force to the addiction, absolving that was so important. So having friends, having people that I could talk to who were, who had been through the same things, who were going through the same things, who we could kind of navigate it together. I think that having that sense of community is like, so, so, so important um, when you're recovering from something like that. So that was huge. 
and meditation. I I smile when I say meditation. No, it's tea. I, I know you're think a tea. People I know, check out. <laughs> no, I no, I, I I I like meditation. I've done it. I I know you did TM or do mm-hmm. TM. Yeah. I actually tried to do it. Which is, it's mm-hmm. a whole other story for a whole other day. I mean, nothing bad happened. I just I tried to do it and then I just got out of it and never went back. But I found some other forms of meditation that have worked mm-hmm. for me along the way. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that TM has the monopoly on meditation, anything that works for you. And I had tried different kinds throughout my sobriety and, you know, I was kind of a dabbler and I would do like the apps and do some guided stuff. And I still like those from time to time, but I just felt like I was a little relaxed after, but I didn't feel like I was really getting a benefit from it. And even just a little relaxed is great, especially for somebody who deals with anxiety. But a lot of people around me had been doing TM and I just started noticing it more. I'm like, oh, that person, like, I really want what they embody. You know, there's just something different. And I was like, oh, they do TM. And then like the next person, I'm like, okay, this is a sign. I need to try this. And I'm such a proponent of it because it really- TM is transcendental meditation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's twice a day for 20 minutes in silence. I don't do it perfectly. I've only missed a handful of days, at least doing one meditation a day in the years that I've done it. So it really changed my life so profoundly because, you know, back to the awareness, I just, even in sobriety, I think I started doing it when I was a few years sober. I was, I was pretty aware and I was pretty mindful, but we're so distracted. And especially being somebody who I run a business on Instagram and, you know, and a website and being, being a digital person, um, But even if people don't do this, you know, it's just between the emails and the phones and the this and the that, like we can go through our entire day without being in our bodies and without being in our minds, you know, and so without going too much into it, because I don't want people to to glaze over, you know, it really just those 20 minutes of sitting quietly really helped me to see what my mind actually does and see the truth in my life. And also it helped like so, so, so immensely with my anxiety and, and with trauma too. I would say like the other thing that I picked up in your story that I think helped you reduce the shame in your journey was fitness. Cause mm-hmm. I know you, uh, you did Kayla's program. I haven't followed her in a few years, so I don't know what she's doing now, but I know back when you were doing it, she was, she was amazing. She, 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 she's done, yeah. a, she did a lot for the fitness industry has done a lot, excuse me, I should say. But I, I remember when you first started the Blonde Files Instagram, you didn't post it. You didn't post who you were, right? Like it was kind of hidden. Am I, am yeah. I right? So I started it. I was like two years sober at the time. And yeah, Kayla, it's seen as BBG. It was huge. And she really did kind of pioneer like the Instagram workout space. This is before obviously quarantine. And like now everybody is an, an Instagram trainer. Yeah. Um, but she was like way ahead of the curve with that. This was in 2016. Um And, you know, so I felt like I had kind of had the emotional, I had, I had my emotional life down, you know, I was, I had worked through a lot of my old stuff and, um, I had kind of rebuilt this life that I was happy with, but I felt still kind of uncomfortable in my body. Um, I had always been active when I was younger and then obviously drugs and alcohol just took precedent. And so, when I got sober, I would work with trainers and I would try to like get a consistent workout thing. And I just couldn't find anything that stuck again, like meditation. I kind of need discipline in case you haven't noticed. 
So I like, I need the discipline of TM saying like, sit down twice a day and do it. And I needed like the, you know, the program that Kayla at Cena's had that was like four days a week, you're doing this, you're doing, you know, high intensity strength training and three days a week you're walking. And because I'm a very compliant person by nature. And if you like, give me the rules, at least in sobriety, I'm, I'll follow them. So yeah. So I started doing her program and I started my Instagram simultaneously and I, I called it the blonde files because I didn't want to show my face. I was posting before pictures of my body and I've always been petite, but I still felt like after going from one end of the spectrum, you know, malnourished and like just skin and bones and tiny to being healthy, I had gone to the other end of the spectrum for me, which was, you know, I just felt uncomfortable and I had other issues like bloating and, um, just didn't feel comfortable in my skin again. So yeah, so I started doing her program and about six months into it, um, I ended up revealing myself and I do air quotes because it was so not a big deal at the time. Nobody knew who I was any, anyway, you know, I had like 2000 followers and, um, but that was what actually launched this whole platform that I have now. I remember, I started doing it in my apartment because I didn't even want to go into a gym because I had no self-confidence, especially when it came to working out. And so I was doing it in my apartment for a few weeks consecutively. She had an app at the, she still has an app, but that's what I was following at the time. And I remember like, I couldn't do like five consecutive squats. And then there were these like straight leg, what were they? Straight leg sit-ups or something. I think I remember very vividly the moment where I was doing it in like the third or fourth week on my bedroom floor, this tiny bedroom in the apartment that I was living in at that time. And I realized that I could do all 20 of them like easily. And I remember the confidence that came with that. And that early year, especially of doing that, once I did finally get the confidence to go into the gym and do it, it totally translated into other aspects of my life. So now that you've heard more about the addiction crisis and some empowering stories of recovery, here are some solutions to the problem. First, we hear again from Heather Hayes. So are you against parents? Say like somebody's kid comes to them and they admit they're having substance abuse issues or the, the parent suspects that they're ha- the kid is having addiction issues. Do you, do you recommend parents refrain from asking questions and just getting on the phone with a professional right away? Or is there some kind of basic questions they can ask to help connect with them on an emotional level and bridge the gap and have their kid feel heard, loved, and supported? Absolutely. I think the first thing, if a kid comes to their parent and says, I'm struggling, I, have, I think I have a problem. I think the first response is to say, I love you. And I can't imagine how much courage it took for you to come to me. Tell me about it. But then when it comes to the solution, yeah, let's get some help. We're going to reach out to someone. This isn't my area of expertise. Even if you work in the field, you can't do it for your own family. Even if you are me and a, and a family member comes, I say, let's go get some help. Yeah. So. If you're a parent, I think really reaching and asking for help, it's too dangerous. Your child may come to you and say, I've got this under control and I'm going to quit. And they might be able to, but they might not. And if it's might not, there's a lot at risk. And I do think by the time a child or someone comes around and says, I think I have a problem, there's generally a problem. And so after that happens, that dialogue and the, the parent helps the, the child feel understood, heard, loved, and knowing that it took 
a lot of bravery to come forth and admit that is the next step after saying, Hey, I, I am not an expert in this. We need to get some help together. Is it the parent who typically calls somebody like you? Is it the kid? Like, how does that work? It's typically the parent who calls, looks around and says, let's get some help. Let's get an assessment. Let's have an evaluation. And then let's put in some protective measures right. to make sure that you're safe. Yeah. Because I think what happens, I think sometimes is they leave it up to the kid and the kid's already struggling and, and maybe they know they have a problem and, and they've admitted it, but maybe they're not a hundred percent committed sure. to making that change. So I think when the parent kind of steps in and, and just says, Hey, I'm here just to help support you in whatever way I can. Let's get an expert in here. Let's talk about it and see how we can move forward together. And I'm going to support you along the way. And I think one of the issues that parents run into is they're like, what did I do wrong? Like, why is this happening to our family? How could I have done things differently? They want some answers as to how they could have maybe raised their kids better, whatever it is. So what advice do you have for parents when they ask you those types of questions? Because I'm sure you get asked it a lot. I get asked a lot. And I actually have thought a lot about what is it that yeah. makes it hard for parents versus diabetes or, or other illnesses. And I think there is a bit of that. It's not my kid. I don't want it to be my kid. I think that we as professionals have not done as good of a job as we should have or could have. I hate should and could, but there it is. Around educating people about what is addiction? People will still say things like, oh, addictive personalities, or we've known for decades that addiction isn't caused by a personality. So we've not helped the, the general population understand what it is, what it looks like, what the treatments are, and that's problematic. One in four children have got addiction somewhere in their family. So there's also a high, parents have to look at their own relationships with chemicals too. We live in a chemical culture where if you have a headache, take an extra strength. If you're going to have a good time, you have to have a beer in your hand. Uh. So I think that often clouds and gets in the way. And then I do agree with you that it's hard to understand, that particularly if you start talking about gaming addiction, eating disorders, what really drug use is, what alcoholism looks like because of the stigma. And it's hard for parents to not feel like I must have done something wrong. It must be me. I must be a bad parent. And parents aren't. You know, I think the more that they can understand and learn about it, often they've raised, they may have four children and one of the four raised almost identically, just in a different place in the birth order is the one who's addicted. And a lot of it boils down to that brain chemistry. And yeah. once parents can begin to get support themselves, they'll also begin to learn that it, it's not their fault right. that they didn't cause it. We all make mistakes as parents too. So it's easy to step back and say, oh, maybe it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gotten divorced or I hadn't been so short or I hadn't worked so hard. So that feeds into it as well. I want to go down the path of how a, a parent can support somebody, whether it's a child, whether it's a loved one, whoever it is, while throughout their recovery, while they're getting sober, say they go off the treatment and they get out and the, the person's now trying to stay in recovery and maintain their sobriety, what can someone do to help support them along the way? I think the best thing a family member can do is to have their own program of recovery too, mm -hmm. so that the whole family gets into healing. And that will help shift the dynamic of how they relate, how they interact. Again, letting a person be responsible for their own recovery, but also 
continuing to look at how I'm going to take care of myself. And again, with young adults who are financially dependent, there's always, you don't just give them a windfall of money. It's like putting a loaded gun in their hand, (laughs) but to look at how do I support you in a way where I'm supporting your health, not contributing to your demise and doing that while letting the professionals step in, you know, often people will go to treatment and then they'll go into some kind of monitoring program or they'll go into a recovery residence afterwards where their loved ones are getting the support that they need so that parents, for example, can step back and not have to do that and work on spending quality time and learning how to connect in a different way with their children. So what happens when you have addiction or mental illness in a family system is that we get stuck in this way of interacting that is often the rules become rigid and there's lots of either anger or trying to micromanage or hands off or whatever it is, it's not working. So the way the family members interact, you almost have to deconstruct that to be able to reconstruct it in a healthier way. And that's what we want through recovery and through healing are for relationships to heal, to change, and to begin to build back the trust. The trust is broken across the board. But when you have addiction, again, broken promises, lies, hiding, arrests. So trust is a huge issue for family members to repair. So if you're not having to step in and wonder, are you high? Are you not? Are you? Then you can work on just being a parent, house, being a sibling. So, yeah. So what do you advise people to do? I think we covered if a kid comes to you and admits that they have a problem, what do you advise somebody to do if they think that their parent, their kid is up to no good while also trying to, to hold a safe space for them to feel like they can be honest with you? So it depends on the age of the child. And again, we're talking about a world where there's a lot of dangerous drugs out there. So I think if a parent is concerned about their loved one, they should go and and meet with a professional, have an evaluation, drug tests, hair tests can be very revealing about what's really going on or whether a person's putting themselves in high risk situations. Again, it's not just drugs in this age. There are also a lot of young adults, a lot of teenagers that have double lives on social media where they're one of the things that we know is that there are a lot of predators out there And a lot of young teens are susceptible to to being abused, pimped out, sending pictures of themselves, getting paid for that, meeting up with inappropriate, dangerous, high-risk behavior. There are lots of different ways. And gambling, there are a lot of ways that it plays out. And so if parents suspect one thing is, again, especially if your child is a teen underage, it's being able to have access and say, we want to see what's happening on social media. We want to keep you safe. We don't want to look and read everything you do, but we want to make sure that we keep you safe and protected. And talking to your children about that, which I think is hard. It's hard enough to talk to your children about sex, much less to talk to a 12-year-old about why they shouldn't send naked pictures out on social media or on their phones or on, on TikTok or Snapchat. Yeah, I think conversations are definitely challenging between the parent and kid, especially because I think there's a huge generational difference between parents these days and kids. I think a lot of parents now, social media didn't exist when they were kids. So it's a whole different realm, a whole different element. I didn't even know you can you can buy drugs now on like dating apps. I didn't even know that. I knew somebody that was doing that and I was like, wow, that's 
that's like a thing. I, I didn't know. Snapchat. Yes, yeah. Right. And so just helping people stay informed as to where kids can buy drugs and they can buy them online. Now they can buy them on Snapchat. They can buy them on dating apps. They can obviously buy them on the streets. They can buy them through friends. They're delivered to the house. Yeah. And so we talked about a situation earlier that seemed easy where the kid says, I need help. The parent says, okay, let's call a professional. Then they come in, which we know most of the time doesn't happen. Most of the time, the situation, at least in my experience, I could be wrong, yeah. is the kid or the addict, whoever we're talking about has a problem and they don't want to get help. So how does that change the situation? How does that change the dialogue between the parent and the child? And then what are the next steps from there? That they So with a child over 18, really all the way through the lifespan from that point on, Again, I think the best approach is if you come in, if you end up doing an intervention coming from that place of we love you, we care about you, here are all the things we love about you. Here's everything that's right about you. And here's what's paining us. And, and that's something a person can't argue with. I'm worried. I'm scared. At one point, you grew up wanting to go to college, and now you've failed out and you've had three arrests. That breaks my heart. It feels right. like bigger than you has taken over. And for parents to look at Again, what are the, how do you support health versus contribute to demise? If your child is in college and they are failing out and they're addicted to opiates and they've gotten on Suboxone and back on to, they've had a couple of overdoses and they have no treatment or care and they go back to college into that environment or back out into the area where that's at and they haven't gotten any help. Again, that's not supporting their health. That's putting them right back into that situation. So I think the parents can begin to take a look at what are they going to support? What are they not? Family members as well. And not from a harsh, punitive way, but from I love you. And this is a warrior's way of, of parenting or being your spouse. We love you enough to say that it may hurt to tell you no, but it'd be harmful if we didn't. Don't want to cause you harm. You know, under 18... Parents can have their children go to treatment if that's appropriate without them consenting. And there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of mixed feelings and emotions for parents about doing that. But when you have a child who is on the threshold, that maybe they're psychotic, in and out of high-risk, dangerous situations, tearing up the home, their siblings are scared, they're bringing drugs into the home. They're not going to school. Again, sometimes that's the only way to stop that disruptive behavior. What's important is that you work with a professional to go to a good place. The child will, will more often than not be angry about going, but having them go in a way that's respectful, that is as untraumatizing as possible to stop that, to stop the behavior and stop the self-destruction. Here is some advice Arielle would give to her younger self if she was struggling. Last question I have for you is this, is I want you to, to kind of imagine that you're talking to, to, to young Arielle and maybe you're like 21, 22 years old and just in the thick of it and just really struggling and just not knowing if you're going to get through it. Tons of fear, tons of anxiety. What's a few pieces of advice that you're giving to her to help her get through it? Well, I'm asked this question kind of often, and I, I usually have some of the same answers. I would tell her, like, put down the blow. And I always say that, <laughs> <laughs> like, kind of as a joke, but also, you know, I just, I, I thought that I had to do these things to fit in. 
And so the real thing that I would probably want to tell myself, I think what, what happened in my story was that like, I was putting up these facades, you know, and I really couldn't be my authentic self. And because I couldn't be my authentic self, whether that meant like asking for help or just being sober at a younger age, I really, I I had to keep drinking and using to, to like feel comfortable. And so I think I would tell her that it's okay to be yourself, you know, like it sounds so cliche, but like you are enough. I really thought that I had to hide behind these things to fit in. At the same time, I know that I wouldn't have listened. <laughs> right. I think that that's so important. Um, I just, I just wasn't ready to hear anything until I was ready. To close the episode out, here is Mike's advice to someone who has a loved one that is battling addiction. There's probably parents maybe listening to this. Or they have someone they know that someone's struggling with addiction. And so I don't want you to maybe give advice, but maybe from your experience, like, and you were in the thick of your addiction, what, what would you have wanted from your, your mom? What would you have wanted from your dad, your sisters in that moment to, to kind of help you like take that first step to, to get well and to make something of yourself? Like you said, you wanted. I can't even begin to relate or understand what it must be like for these parents. Yeah. I, I, I honestly, th- th- this is the topic that really, really hurts me and upsets me because my mom is, it, it, that, that is such a painful, but also amazing topic for me. And it, and it, and it, I can't even begin to imagine what it's like to be the loved one of an addict. I'll ne- that's the one thing I'll never be able to relate to or understand in life. Um, that pain and, 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 they want to walk this thin line between just smothering these people with love and, 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 and compassion and care and showing them that, that tough love. And honestly, maybe I'm biased because of what ended up working for me. But lately, like, I, I guess like I've been leaning a little bit more towards that route of just not enabling yeah. That behavior. And, and this is such a tricky topic. It's such a trip, tricky topic, but like, I just feel like that desperation, like, like the fire touching the ass of the young addict, like, like that first night on the streets with nowhere to live. That, I feel like that might be enough for some. And if it's not enough, it's at least a start. Like that coddling mentality, I think I had a lot of that through my mom and my grandmother. And I think it really allowed me to keep going. And I know it's so hard to have to, to have to tell your kid, like, I'm fucking done with you because you, because you are ruining your life and you are, and you're ruining our lives too. And I cannot take this anymore. What, what you're at, what you're asking me to give advice on right now. Well, just like if you were in that moment, yeah. I, I hear you, but what you're asking me to give advice on right now, I liken to string theory. Yeah. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Or, or rocket yeah. science. Like I, I can look back at my life and the choices I made and, and, and what addiction was like for me and how painful that was for me. But it is so hard, it is so hard to be a family member, to be a loved one of, a, of an addict. And honestly, like I, 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 I put my, my soul I've not put my soul into many things in this life. I put my soul into this book. It is, it is, it is my, my shining achievement in life. The entire book 
was edited and proofread by some of the best, you know, people in the, in the, in the space and, and some stuff was moved around and I wrote it all, but it, we you needed editing and proofreading. The final chapter of the book is a book called afterthoughts. It was untouched. I said, no one will touch this chapter of the book. I do not want it proofread. I do not want it edited. I do not want a single change made to this chapter of the book. The last three pages of that chapter, the last three pages of the book is the most impactful writing content I will ever produce. And what that is, is letters to the people who are suffering. And everyone I talk to talks about these last three pages. There's a letter to the person who has never suffered through mental illness or addiction. There's a letter to the family members and there's a letter to the person suffering. And I cried my eyes out for all three of those letters the entire time I wrote it without exception. And, and all I can offer to the family member or to the person suffering is what I put in those pages, honestly. And this is not a promo. I, I please, by all means, take in this episode. And if you decide that this, I, I have not promoted or told anyone this book is a must read. Luckily I've had 50,000 buyers been able to say, this is a must read. You have to read this book, right? But, but that is all I can offer. It is just such a tough answer. And, and at the end of the day, I guess, I guess what I would leave with is this. If you're a parent, if you're a loved one, if you're a spouse, it is not a shared battle. This is not your battle. This is not your fault. This is not your mess to clean up. This is not a burden for you to carry. This is a personal journey that the addict must go through and decide on their own accord when they are finished, when they have had enough pain and when they are ready to change their lives. Whatever you do couldn't have been done better. Whatever you've done couldn't have been done better. So what advice do I have to someone who has either lost someone or continues to battle with someone every day? Keep going, keep going, keep doing whatever it is you're doing that is keeping that addict alive because that is the best you could possibly do. That's it. That's all I have. I can't, there's nothing else I could say. There's no other piece of advice I could give because of how challenging that scenario is besides keep going and don't let the fucking light go out. So hopefully now that you listen to this episode, you feel hopeful, you feel inspired. And you understand what's going on with this drug epidemic that we're facing. And, you know, maybe you're inspired now to take action. If you or a loved one is suffering from addiction, or maybe you're not prepared to ask for help or take that step to get help um, in the future, if you or a loved one ends up suffering with addiction issues. So like I always do with so many of these episodes, what I'd like you to do is share takeaways, whether it was something Mike said about his story. Maybe it was something that Ariel shared with her journey or some of the stats that Heather shared, or maybe it was something that Mike shared with his advice or Ariel's advice or something that Heather stated with, with steps you can take, whatever it was, tag Heather, tag Mike, tag Ariel, tag myself, because we love to hear feedback. We love to hear what you thought of this episode. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.